Praise the Lord. Great song set this morning. Join me if you would. Acts chapter number 7. Acts chapter 7. We've been here for, uh, again, I was gone a week, I know, and um, uh, so that added to it, but seems like probably a couple of months we're coming up on in this one chapter. Uh, I was trying to think, what are the longest sermons in the New Testament, and I'm not 100% sure. This is one of the longest sermons in all of the New Testament. Um, obviously, the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus, Matthew um, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that was a long sermon, Uh, but kind of the topics broke up in that one. This one is a continuous flow um, because this man's being put on trial. So we're studying uh, the trial and the defense of a man named Stephen, and here's the accusations being brought against him. He's before the Sanhedrin, a 71-member court, that's the highest court in the Jewish land, and he's been accused of opposing God, opposing the law of God, opposing Moses, and he's against the temple. So these are the charges, and it seems that particularly being against the law of Moses is not so much against the moral law and not just the civil law. It seems that he's against the ceremonial law, all the sacrifices. That's what we've kind of gleaned. And so he's having to answer this charge, and he's against the temple, they think. And so he's defending himself, and for 49 verses... He's been answering this. He's done it in a roundabout way. So let's review. We've got some brand new folks here this morning. have been for none of this, and some of you have been for every single one. So we've got a, a range. He goes all the way back, and he pulls some lessons from the life of Abraham. Can't revisit that this morning. He goes back, and he pulls lessons from the life of Joseph, the first great deliverer. There's a famine coming, and God sent the Jews Joseph, and there were lessons from that. Then the second great deliverer that God sent was this man, Moses. And they rejected Moses. Who made you? Who appointed you as a ruler and a judge over us? And they thrust him aside, even though they're in slavery and they clearly need. Catch this. It's one thing. if they We we didn't know a famine was coming, and that's why we rejected Joseph. But you know after 390 years, as the Lord sends Moses to you, 390 years of slavery, you need a deliverer, yet they reject him. And so we've spent three weeks, and we culminated that last week. Stephen spent the longest time on the life of Moses because that's the one he was accused of being against. And then that brought us up to where we are now because he's finished all those lessons, and now Stephen is going to make his final point. I'm just throwing this out. Some have proposed that there was some commotion within the Sanhedrin, in the courtroom, that made him jump so quickly to verse 51. I don't know. We don't know. Was he all along planning on, boom, I'm going to finish this thought, and then the Lord's going to lead me to say this. I don't know if that's in his mind. Or was there a commotion? And was there a look after verse 48? Whoa, these guys are really ticked. They're about to stop listening to me. I better hit my point. Hard to say. But he does reach his conclusion in verses 51 to 53 that will be part of today's text. So let's real quickly review. Last week. Let's just review last week. If you were not here last week, and by the way, I don't say this all the time, okay? I don't say it all the time. There's probably five or six times a year, if I had to guess, that if you missed a week, that I would tell you to go back and listen. Last week is one of those weeks I think is very important for us as a church in particular. Please go back and listen to that on the website if you were not here. So some insights from last week, just quick review. Moses has led the children of Israel out of Egypt. He's delivered them. 
God has worked miraculously. And here's the key. They know his credentials. They know beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is the man of God. This is the great prophet. And he's the lawgiver. He's received the law. And yet, they thrust him aside. Can I review with those of you that were here last week? They thrust aside the true messenger of God. And so I drew from that a point. And this is not because of my position. I am not infallible. I may say some things that are incorrect. And I have said some things through the years that are incorrect. Not intentionally, but misguidedly. But hear me. When a messenger from God is speaking God's message. And you just thrust aside what they say. And thrust aside the messenger then you have thrust aside God. Be careful. This is what they did with Moses. Knowing full well he was the man of God. And then there at the foot of Mount Sinai, they ask his brother Aaron, we need you to make us gods. And so they made a golden calf. And we looked at this last week. Of all the animals, why a golden calf? And there's a reason. That's what they were used to seeing down in Egypt. The Egyptians worshipped the bull gods. And so this is what Israel saw. And so their religion, their theology was rooted and grounded in greatly, even more so influenced by what they saw in Egypt than by what God had revealed about himself. God had revealed nothing about himself as being like a bull. And yet they let the culture that they're used to influence their methods and their thoughts about God. The last thing I want to hit on before we head into this week's message and the last part of that review is this in verse 39 knowing who he was the Jews turned away from Moses thrust him aside and turned their back on God and in their hearts they wanted to go back to Egypt Egypt suddenly looks great and because they turned from God God turned from them and we found that is also in the New Testament in Romans chapter 1 be careful When you know what God is saying and you just decide, I'm just going to turn my back on God, he may just turn his back on you. And you ought to go read Romans 1, listen to last week's message. And when God abandons a person, they will spiral into the most awful, heinous types of sin that they never thought they would be involved in. It's a downward spiral when God abandons someone. So yield to him. So just before today's text, here's where Stephen had left off. I'm being charged with being against the temple. And so he goes back and he says the nation of Israel had the tabernacle, a tent. And that's how they worshiped God. I threw out a number to you, 485 years. They had the tabernacle. God told them to build it a certain way. And they had the Ark of the Covenant that represented the presence of God. And they had that in the wilderness those 40 years. They had it in the days of conquest as they go into the land of Egypt. They have it during the ages of the judges. Then they, they have a king. They have it during the kingship 40 years of Saul, the 40 years of David. And then David feels guilty because he, he has these cedar and, and gold palaces and God's Ark of the Covenant is in this tent and he wants to build God a house. Now here's Stephen's point. He's telling the Sanhedrin they're very zealous and very defensive of the temple. And he tells them, he's implying, you guys know what happened when David asked to build God a temple instead of the tabernacle. God said no, no. And he did not let David build him a temple. But he does let his son build him a temple. And so what Stephen, in essence, is doing, Stephen knows this. Jesus has now died on the cross. And so all the sacrifices that you guys keep offering are null and void. He's paid for sin. He's met the law's demands. 
It is a great place for prayer, but we don't need to offer any more sacrifices. But if that's not enough, have you guys ever stopped and considered why did God allow the gap of time from David's desire until Solomon actually builds the temple? That gap of time tells us something. The temple itself is not crucial. And then he says, Solomon did build God a house. Solomon did build him a house. But this one really ticked him off. But God does not dwell in houses made by the hands of men. So there's this gap of time. Proves that God's not desperate for a temple. And then when Solomon does build God a house, God actually does not dwell himself in houses made by mankind. Could I say it this way? Stephen's point. Nobody puts God in a box. Nobody puts God in a box. You can't limit him. You may try, but God will not be limited. You, you, you think you've domesticated God. You think you've put him in your nice little container. Oh, no, it's really nice. It's made out of gold. It doesn't matter. You are not going to contain the God of the universe. Heaven is his throne, God says in verse 48, 49. And so with that in mind, here comes today's text. Look with me if you would. Verse 51 to 60. There is an abrupt change, I will admit. Was there a you know, disruption in the room? Perhaps. Verse 51. To the Sanhedrin, Stephen says, You stiff-necked people. That's going to win him a lot of friends. After all he said, and connecting all the dots, he begins his message, Fathers, brothers, hear me, implying it's going to take me a while to really, you want to know, I need to kind of set the stage and hopefully you can follow my line of thought. And now he's connected the dots and again, they're getting the inclination. And finally here it's time and here's his conclusion. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you're stiff-necked. God is in essence trying to get you to bow your will, but here's what you're doing. Stiff-necked, ain't not going to do it, bucking against God. And your heart and your ears are uncircumcised. Oh, you're circumcised physically, probably most of them the eighth day, just like the law called for. You're circumcised physically, but your heart and your ears are uncircumcised. And here's his point. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. You're just like them. The point, you always resist the Holy Spirit. In fact, he asked it this way. Sanhedrin, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Think with him, Stephen. Hey, Sanhedrin, which, help me remember, which prophet was it that came along, shared the word of God, and the nation of Israel just loved him the whole time? What was his name? That's right, there wasn't one. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. God sends men. They come and proclaim there's a a Messiah's coming. The righteous one's coming. Here's what he's going to do. Here's what he's going to say. Here's some clues about his life. Here's how you'll be able to. And they kill these guys one after another. Not all of them, but they kill many of them. Stephen said, you getting the pattern of our people? Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Watch, here's his jumping point. Whom you, the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. 
You who received the law as delivered by angels. I don't know the connection there, guys. I can't tell you. Somehow the angels were involved in the mediating and the the delivering of the law at Mount Sinai to Moses. So Stephen says, you received the law as delivered by angels, but here's the problem. You did not keep it. Oh, you have it. You read it. You talk about it. You debate it. You teach it in your schools, but you don't act. You've missed the whole point of the law. You don't keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. I read one commentator who used this as they snarled. Um, when do you show your teeth? What, when is that? I'm not talking about the dentist. I mean, what emotion in a person causes them to show? There's frustration. There's anger. And what's another one? Okay, smiling. I'm not, they're not smiling at him. When, does, when do you show your teeth? What? Pain. It hurts or... Ugh! They are literally snarling at it. It's probably a combination of frustration. It pains us to hear what you're saying. And it makes us angry. I mean, they are showing their teeth. This is, this is the best men in Israel. These are the dignified guys. But he, you're going to see this back and forth. They, he, they, he. When they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth. But he Full of the Holy Spirit. That's important. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing the book of Acts. Holy Spirit says, all that he said there, by the way, take it to the bank. He was full of the Holy Spirit. It is authoritative. He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. I don't know what he saw, but he saw the glory. of God is a God of glory. He's looking into heaven, heaven. Not many people did that. Isaiah. Ezekiel. Paul, 2 Corinthians, John in the book of Revelation, add Stephen to that list. We're, not talk- we're talking about a very short list. Paul says, I can't tell you what I saw. Right here at the end, he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, now this, again, I'm read- I read this this week, and I thought, man, Stephen is kind of like Joseph. Joseph gets these visions of his brothers all bowing at his feet, and he tells them about his dreams. His dreams are accurate and real, but they don't want to hear it. So here's Stephen. They're angry, man. They're ticked off. The whole Sanhedrin's getting ready to pounce on him, literally. And he gets this vision, and then he says it. (laughs) This is not right. Get the picture. Behold. Hey, look. I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Translation. Do y'all see it? No, they don't see it. He sees it. They don't see it. You say, well, then what do they do? Remember, they do this. He does that. They do that. He does this. Look at verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice. Don't even know what they're... Ah! Stop! No! No! Do y'all see it? I see the heavens open. I see Jesus standing at the right... No! I'm going to regret doing that. I'm going to pay for that later when my voice wears out. I wasn't planning on doing that. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. That's real grown up. Ah! It's like pain, anger, fury, rage. 
They cried with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and rushed at him. Then they cast, now we got to do it right. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. Please listen, I'm not going to elaborate that today. I don't mean they threw rocks at him. They stoned him. Stoned him. You'd have to think through that. Most of us have probably been privy, especially guys when you're growing up in elementary and maybe high school and the little organized fights in the bathroom and when you hear flesh and bone striking flesh and bone, it can have a little sound and it can be a little sickening. Now this is stones crushing flesh and bone. They cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears, rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. I'm not going into that today. We'll pick that up, Lord willing, next week. So the witnesses are laying their garments down. Got some key witnesses, the main ones. And to really stone someone, you need to get your garment out because it's going to be vigorous work. going to get a little sweaty. We want to do it right. So they lay their garments in verse 59. As they were stoning Stephen, the idea is he called out, and it's almost like the wording is the more he called out, the more urgently they want to stone him because we've got to shut this man up. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And in falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Let's notice three things this morning. We'll spend a good bit of most of our time, again, like last week, is on the first point. And that's Stephen's courageous conclusion. Stephen's courageous conclusion, verses 51 to 53. You stiff-necked people and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. And I guess... I know we have different age ranges and we have men and women. I won't go into this. And honestly, I've never studied it out. I don't really want to study it out. <laughs> uh, let's just say circumcision had physical benefits, but it also made a distinction between the Jews and other people, groups, and nations around them. Everybody with me? So there's a physical aspect of circumcision. But really, it was much more than that. It was not just an identifying mark and a sign that they're God's people. It was also, it gave a symbolic spiritual message, if you're taking notes. Jewish circumcision had to do, and it represented the cutting away of spiritual filth. Had to do with the cutting away of spiritual filth. In essence, what Stephen is saying, hey, Sanhedrin, you look really impressive. You guys are really religious. I see your robes. You got the extra long tassels. And boy, you've got the phylacteries, your leather straps with the little scriptures in it on your, on your head and on your arm. And you got your hair growing just right. And the beard is just right. Man, you guys look good. And you, your feast and the way you offer your sacrifices and your rabbinical training, man, you guys look really impressive. On the outside, again, I'm getting the thought across of circumcision. Here's what he's saying. Physically, you're circumcised, but just saying, the folds, the folds of your heart, the crevices, the recesses have not been cut away and they have filth in them. Your heart is full of rebellion. You've heard the Word of God, you read it, you study it, but you don't yield to the Word of God. Your heart is black. Your heart is full of hatred. Your heart is dark. It's full of filth and sin. And that comes out, obviously, in verse 54 
and following. Most of us have had a dog before, and when you take your dog maybe out for a walk, sometimes, have you ever had this happen where the dog just pulls ahead of you? You ever had that happen and the dog is actually walking the human being? We've all seen that. There's one. That's a resisting that's a stiff neck, like, I don't want to do it. And they're going over here and over there. And I, you're wanting to walk this way. And they're going here and there. That's the nation of Israel. But I think what is worse is sometimes the dog decides it doesn't want to go anymore. And so it just stiffens its feet, puts its head down, and it tries to slip the collar. Have you ever had that happen? That's the nation of Israel. Just planting, such as Harley the dog. He's not trained. He likes to go on walks the way he likes to go on walks. He's getting older now. We've let him have his way. God is tired of Israel having its way. Let's quickly think through what has Stephen taught? What is he saying? What is he teaching? Have y'all connected Sanhedrin? Have you connected the dots? And we could even add others in there. Let's review it quickly. Watch. Do you see the pattern of our history? Do you see our nation's pattern? Even Abraham. Our father, as great as he is, definitely saved. Father of our faith. He delayed in obeying God. God had to reveal himself again and call him again there in Haran. He didn't follow the Lord faithfully. Our fathers, some of your, literally your tribe, the name at your tribe, the ten brothers, hated their younger brother that God had sent to be their deliverer. They hate him so much, they wanted to kill him. Thankfully, the oldest brother talked him out of killing him. They literally sold him into slavery. There he goes, 17 years old, crying as he's heading into Egypt as a slave. That's our fathers. That's their deliverer going there, but they're resisting the Holy Ghost. Fast forward again. They know they're in slavery. God sends them Moses at age 40. They reject him. Who made you our ruler and our judge? And they reject him. They get out into the wilderness. They're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses comes down and says, here's the rules. God has said, you do this and this and this, and he'll be your God and you'll be his people. Listen, they promised, they promised all that he says we will do. Moses goes back up on the mountain and what? Within days, Israel has broken the first two commandments with an idol. Do you see our pattern? This is our people. They rebel against God all through the wilderness. God brings them up to the edge of the promised land. Having shown his power over Egypt, they send in the spies. The spies come back and say, man, they're really big and they're really tough. They've got some fortified cities. It's going to be hard to overthrow them. And they doubt God's ability to give them the promised land. And so God says, that generation, you're going to die in the wilderness. You will not get to go in. They finally go in. Watch, get the pattern. We finally go in and we conquer, but we don't conquer the whole thing. Y'all help me. Then the age of the judges came. And the Bible says every man did that which was right. How's it finish? In his own eyes. I think this is the right way. Well, I live like everybody's doing what's right. Just totally abandoning the word of God. Everybody's doing what's right in his own eyes. Finally, God sends them this judge who's also a prophet by the name of Samuel. What do they tell him? We want a king like all the other nations. No, you don't. Yes, we do. God says, Samuel, tell them all the dangers of having a king. He shares that. We don't care. We want a king. And they chose Saul. This is their pattern over and over. Elijah. We can't go over my, Elijah. Y'all remember? Honestly, this man of God thinks he's the last one that is following Jehovah. God has to tell him, no, Elijah, i got seven others who have not bowed their knee to the prophet Baal. You're not the last. I know it seems like you're the only one. 
Isaiah, probably the one who told us the most about what to expect when the Messiah comes. They cut him literally in half. Zechariah, I'm not talking about the one who wrote the prophetical book. I'm talking about the priest, Zechariah. Speaks truthfully to the nation of Israel. They literally stone him between the altar and the front door of the holy place. Between here and here, they stone him to death. Jeremiah has the audacity to tell the nation, listen, not only Judah and Benjamin have we been taken into Babylon in captivity. It's going to last a while. It's going to last 70 years. So you might as well go ahead and start marrying each other, build houses, plant crops. It's not going to end quickly. They hate him so much. We don't want to hear that message. They throw him in a pit. Apparently he ends up dying down in Egypt. Do you see our pattern? We have a pattern. Whenever God says to do something, we disobey. Now here's Stephen's point. Sanhedrin, you hear all that and you know it is true. But in your hearts, you think you're better than them. You think if you lived in Moses' time, we wouldn't have been it. We would have defended Moses. You think if you lived in the life of these other guys that you would have followed them and and recognized them as the prophets. Here's Stephen's message. You're not better than them. You're not the same as them. Sanhedrin, you are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You're the worst of the worst. You're the worst of the worst. How is that possible? They killed the ones that God sent to tell them about the coming of the righteous one. God has sent the righteous one. He's not just the righteous one. He's not just the Messiah. He's God's son himself. You denied him. You betrayed him. And you murdered him. You are the worst. See how blind you are? He's really making friends with this message. That's a lot of courage. I don't know if you've ever had to deliver a message that people don't want to hear that might get you in hot water. I thought about our students this week, and I'll not have you raise your hands. I know in this room we have some, you've got two days of school under your belt now. We've got some teachers have two days of school under their belt. Can I talk to both for a moment? How have you started your year? If you are a Christian, I'm asking you, are you going to be a quiet, secret Christian where nobody's going to know about you? Or, and I get it. It's, our, our schools right now are not very conducive for people coming out and saying that they're a Christian. Are you going to take a stand? Here's this man that was 1 to 71 was the ratio, and he stood up and told him the truth. How is that possible? Because he's full of the Holy Ghost. If you're on the job and you say, I work where I'm surrounded by lost people, do they know, teachers, I know you can't get up and teach and preach in the classroom, but will your life be such that they will recognize my teacher is a born-again Christian, and you take opportunities to let that come out? Are you salt and light? And I know it takes courage. Stephen was able to do this because Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. And I said we would spend more time on this first point, and here's why. I need a few minutes to deal with this last note that you have on that. So let's answer this question. Because it's real easy. Let's admit, man, we can get up there and we can just pound those Jews of that day. And let's just, let's just roast the Sanhedrin because they resist the Holy Spirit. And they're just like the Jews. Jews always seem to be resisting. They have little pockets, little revival. But for the most part, it's far and away rebellion against the Holy Spirit. Honest question. I, if this was a Wednesday night, I'd give you guys like two, three minutes to write answers. Now, I want you to literally think right now. Think. What does resisting the Holy Spirit look like today? Think about that. 
What does resisting the Holy Spirit, because we, yes, their pattern, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. What does resisting the Holy Spirit look like today? I want to give you four ways that we do that. Number one, would you write this down? We resist the Holy Spirit by refusing to even study the Bible in which he speaks. That's how we resist the Holy Spirit. Now we know that specifically of the Trinity, the Godhead, the Holy Spirit wrote the Word of God. The Spirit moved 40 men to actually write it down. He's the author. Through this, the Holy Spirit speaks. So here's my point. This will be very brief. When a person just decides, I'm not going to even read or study the Bible, then you are resisting the Holy Spirit. Not even going to give him a chance to talk. I don't know. We really can't say because it's a moving target all the time. Literally in the seasons, this time of the year, and in the holidays, it's really a moving target. How many Americans are in a church this morning? Probably somewhere between 20 and 30%. So let this sink in. America, the numbers are in. America clearly is resisting the Holy Spirit. We don't even want to come and hear what he has to say in the Word of God. That's one way. Number two. This one I'm going to linger a little longer on. We resist the Holy Spirit by refusing to accept and respond to clear truths that he reveals. You say, well, I... I don't just neglect the Bible. I come in here teaching and preaching, and I read it myself and maybe even study it. That is awesome. But sometimes we refuse to accept and respond to the clear truths that he teaches and reveals. Can we start with the most basic? I need everybody to listen. The Holy Spirit in the Bible says, you are a sinner. The Holy Spirit in the Bible says your sin has earned judgment from God. Your sin must be judged and will be judged. The Holy Spirit in the Word of God says God loved you so much that he sent his one and only son by nature who's an eternal spirit. He had him to become a human being because being spirit he couldn't die. But becoming a human being he could die on a cross and he took all your sins on himself and died on the cross. So much so that God says, God says, the Holy Spirit says that's enough to pay all of your sin, all of your penalty. And God will literally give you salvation for free if you will receive it. Have you agreed with that? If, you, if anyone ever, I am not a sinner. I'm not that bad. I'm a lot better than them. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. If this is you, I don't really believe in Jesus. I don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. His death wasn't for me. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. His death wasn't enough. I need to add to it. I'll take some of his death and I'll add my good life and my baptism, my church attendance, my doing better, my offerings. And that you are resisting what the Holy Spirit says. Have you received it? That's how we resist. He clearly shows something. We just say, nope, don't accept it. Have you accepted these truths? But it doesn't stop. I'm still not done with that second point because I want to put it another way. And this is important. Most of you are Christians already. We resist the Holy Spirit by refusing to accept, now hear my wording, new but clear doctrines. We resist the Holy Spirit by refusing to accept new, I don't mean like, oh, are there some new doctrines that no one's ever thought of? No. Listen, new to you. 
What happens when a new to you, I've never taught that. That's not my doctrine, and it's presented, watch. But it's clearly what the Bible says. How do you respond to that? Do you know, y'all know how some people respond? Eh, I don't like what that's saying. Here's how some, it's clear. That's not how I've been taught. I, I had a good conversation with a lady yesterday afternoon at a party I was at. And we were talking for a moment about the doctrine of how you cannot lose your salvation. And she just said, she says, all my life in the churches I've gone in, I've been taught that. She says, but the more I've been reading, I'm changing. And I thought, good for you. How do you respond when the Holy Spirit presents new to you but clear doctrine? Here's how some. I just can't imagine a God that does that. Or thinks that, or is that way. I can't imagine. You're right. You're right. You can't imagine it, and you wouldn't. Because if you and I were inventing a God, we would not invent a God that allows people to go to hell for eternity for their sin. You and I would not invent that kind of God. But that's not the question. The only question is, how does God present himself in his word? That's the only question. I'll tell you straight up, there are things that are true about God that I would not have invented if I was making God. But I've got to go with what... Yeah... I don't believe that's a sin, or at least anymore. How come? Well, the people in the last 20 years in our country have figured out that's not sin anymore. Okay? You're resisting the Holy Spirit. Honest question. Everybody in here. Have you changed, updated your doctrine before? Have you ever had to change? If you're thinking, oh, I'm sure I have. Don't raise your hand. Don't say that. I want everybody think of a doctrine you've had to change from where you used to believe. Think of it. If you have never changed your doctrine, then that tells me one of two things is happening. Either you don't read the Bible, you don't study the Bible. If you do, you're just going through the motions, not really thinking, not really digging into what it's actually. What is this actually? What is he saying? Podcasts I'm listening to that's confident. What is she teaching? I've never heard what. If you've never changed your doctrine, it's because you're not listening. Or, number two, there is a possibility you were taught perfectly the first time. If that is you, please share with us all your church background and history and all the preachers you've ever listened to because I've had to change my doctrine through the years when the Bible tells me to. To not do it is to resist the Holy Spirit. Number three, we resist the Holy Spirit by grieving the Spirit, by refusing to stop when He convicts us of sin. Holy Spirit clearly says, hey, don't do that anymore. Don't look at that. Don't say that. Stop listening to that. Don't go there anymore. Don't spend so much time with them. Stop hanging around that person. They're not good for you. You're not strong enough yet to be around that group. Stop, stop, stop. And you just keep right on. You're resisting the Holy Spirit by grieving the Holy Spirit. And then obviously the fourth one. We resist the Holy Spirit today by quenching the Spirit, by refusing to do what He says, what He calls us to do. We quench Him by refusing to do what He's called us to do. Can I ask you this? I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm not the Holy Spirit, but as I go through this list, I know that a good many of these are fundamental and basic and absolutely true. I'm going to throw a couple in there that may not apply. 
Has the Holy Spirit called you and told you to have a daily private time with God? And you're like, yes, clearly this is His Word and we know we're supposed to do it. And you just still don't do it. You were saved and you just still don't do it. You're quenching the Holy Spirit. Now let's, let's roast these Jews this morning. Let's really give them a hard time and they deserve it. But remember, we're guilty. Has the Holy Spirit told you, I've given you a spiritual gift and I want you to use it to serve the local body? But you don't do it. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. Do you, are you comforting yourselves this morning? Is anyone comforting themselves this morning because you used your spiritual gift twice a year? Three times a year? Is that why God gave you the, whole, the gift of the Holy Spirit? Is that why he gave you? I'm asking you right now, honestly, when do you use the gifting, the spiritual gifts God has given you to serve this body in what way? You say, I come to church. That's awesome. How are you using your spiritual gift? If you're not, you're resisting the Holy Spirit. Has the Lord called you to serve in the children's ministry? I'm not saying everybody has. But if he has, and you're like, I don't want to do it. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. Has He called you to serve in another ministry? Has He told you, give of your resources to the Lord, but you don't? Has the Lord told anyone here, hey, I want you to go to that exchange seminar, and to this point, you are not doing it. You know there's been a prompting and a nudge, hey, that's for you. Do what it takes, make a, but you're not doing it. Will the Lord call some people to give to the Uganda team and to give a certain amount, but you're like, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do that. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. Number two. We'll be brief on this point. And it's the Sanhedrin's violent rage. Notice the Sanhedrin's violent rage. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Skip down to verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Down in verse 59, and as they were stoning Stephen, hey, honest question. When God uses, honest, let's be honest, when God uses someone to have the courage to expose, verbally expose, hidden, ugly truths about us, how do we respond? Do we just deny it? I don't want to hear that. And just blow it off. Five people may be saying the same thing. But we're just like blowing it off. And God is trying to use them. Or do we actually consider it? Like man this must be an issue. I've heard this multiple times. I need to, I need to listen to this. Write it down. When Stephen dared to go from teaching. They listened. He taught all the, man, he did all that history of Israel. But when he goes from teaching to preaching, they were enraged. Sanhedrin gets enraged. Rather than actually refuting Stephen, hey, Stephen, whoa, wait a minute. Abraham did not stop in Haran. Our fathers did not do that to Joseph. Our fathers did not reject Moses. They did not make a golden calf. They did not doubt God's ability. They can't do that. They know that. So rather than refuting him with words... They just pounce on him physically. Watch. This is key. This is why I said this was key in the reading. 
Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit's actually the one talking. Tells them the message, you always resist the Holy Spirit. They respond by actually validating his message. They get enraged. No, we don't. <laughs> you always resist the Holy Spirit's message. No, we don't. Don't come in here and tell them. We're not listening to that. It's really kind of silly. It's, listen, almost funny if it wasn't really, really sad. Did, did y'all see, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it. Get it. You come into our chambers, young man, accusing us of being Holy Spirit resisting murderers? You go fool around and get yourself killed, son. That's what they did. You feel that? Accuse us of being murderers. We're going to kill you for that. That's your response. You get told you kill God's people. The man that is God's man tells you that, and your response is to kill. It's, it's as ridiculous as a wife telling her husband he's unloving, and he beats her for it. That would be really stupid. Unloving? I'll show you. Like, wait, wait. No, listen. They're supposed to be Israel's most dignified men. And here Stephen starts exalting Jesus. And they, they're pained by it. It's like our ears are too pure. We heard Jesus himself just years before this, right before this same group, saying that he was going to be at the right hand of God and that he's the son of man. And we killed him for that. It's blasphemy. Now you are saying this, and this is too much for us. And literally they can't help. They are grinding their teeth. They're so pained and angered and frustrated. They really are frustrated. It's like, again, some of these are humorous in my mind, but it's like two kids and one's a little bigger and he's not as smart and he's wrong and the other one is smarter and right and making the correct point. But because the one is bigger and he doesn't like it, he can't refute what the other one's saying with his words and so he closes up his ears and then beats him up. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Yes, you can. No, I can't. Can't hear you. Yes, you can. They just stop their ears and run at him. Last thought on this second point is a, I want you to look at verse 50. Where is it? Yes, verse 58. They cast him out of the city. And the witnesses laid down their garments. Do you see that? They cast him out of the city, and the witnesses laid down their garments. So here's two clues. To do, watch, to do what we're going to do, we need to get him out of the city, and the witnesses need to be involved. That tells me that these men are actually trying to frame this mentally in their mind. This is a legal execution that we're carrying out. Write it down. This is no legal execution. Frame it however you want. But Barclay is correct when he writes, this was a lynching. You ought to look up the word lynching, what it means. Like literally just look up lynching. It's named after some man like around the revolutionary time who without a court, without a fair trial, just decides we get to decide what judge. We think we're in the right and we'll just decide. And they go out and kill people, hanging them. Barclay writes, this was a lynching because the Sanhedrin had no right to put anyone to death. It was a surge of blind, uncontrollable anger. And this is Israel's most dignified, supposedly most spiritually mature man. 
The only right that the Romans had given the Jews to kill anyone is if a Gentile went too far into the temple, and that's not this case. It reminds me, as you're writing that note, I remember studying when we were in in Matthew, and I read a commentary, and this one commentary just walked through Jesus' illegal nighttime trial. I ain't kidding, guys. It was over a dozen laws, over one dozen judicial laws. This same body of men broke in Jesus' illegal nighttime trial, and yet the next morning, on that Friday morning, standing before Pilate, they would not let themselves go but so far because they may put themselves under Pilate's hall and under his roof. And that will defile them because we're about to take Passover. You just broke 12 judicial laws last night to bring this man, and now you have the audacity to act like this is going to defile you? Oh, you're going to murder the man, but you have to take him outside the city, and you're using witnesses. Yeah. You guys are so dark. In the crevices and folds of your heart, there's sin. Number three, Stephen's peaceful death. Stephen's peaceful death. I pointed this out earlier. Go back if you would. Look at verse 55. But he, so there's them and then there's he. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Can I give you a quick, do y'all feel, I want you to feel this stark comparison, very different. Here's they, here's him. Watch. They are resisting the Spirit. He's completely yielded, controlled by the Spirit. They're grinding their teeth. He's gazing into heaven. They're filled with rage. He's full of peace. They're spiritually blind. He sees the glory of God. They hate him. He loves them. They murder him. He prays for their pardon. All along, if you're writing, taking notes, write this down. All along, we've been pointing out, Stephen is this man of tremendous vision. Stephen saw beyond what others saw. He saw earlier than what other people saw. He saw things before, sooner, clearly. This is a great man that we're talking about, his death. He saw a vision of God and the glory of God. Here he is about to experience what should be an extremely fearful and painful death. And yet God gives him this amazing gift to see past all of that. And he literally sees the glory of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a massive gift of God. A gracious act of kindness that God did not owe Stephen, but he gave it to him. And so we're looking at verse 55. Did you catch the unusual part of the verse? Everybody see it? But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What's unusual about that text? What's unusual? Jesus standing. Why is he standing? Ephesians 1 says Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Colossians 3 says Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews 1, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Well, the text doesn't say... So I wouldn't die for this note, but I'm going to propose to you. Jesus is certainly not standing. He is standing, but he's not standing for work. It seems, best we could tell, he is standing to welcome the first Christian martyr who represents all the Christian martyrs who are going to give their life because of their faithful service to Christ. And he's standing. Maybe he's standing to represent Stephen. Stephen is standing faithful to me in front of the Sanhedrin. I'll stand for him. But in the whole, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. His work 
of justification and salvation that he needed to do to die on the cross, that's all finished. He is resting at the Father's right hand. His work is done, and yet here he stands, it seems, to welcome the first Christian martyr. And I want to talk about that word just for a moment, martyr. I want to borrow from a gentleman named N.T. Wright. I'm going to paraphrase. The note that you'll write is a paraphrase, and I'll finish with actually a quote from him. But first, we'll paraphrase. I'm giving you a moment to write that because I want you to get what N.T. Wright teaches us. Our message today is Stephen, the first Christian martyr. What does the word martyr mean? The word martyr, I hope you get it. Let's log this in our mind. The word martyr means witness. Witness. Right? teaches that a martyr witnesses by giving evidence. A witness gives evidence, but a martyr has a unique way that they give their evidence. Hear what he teaches. Martyr means witness. A witness is someone who gives evidence. Here, here it comes. Everybody get it. In being prepared to die for their faith, Martyrs, this is key, martyrs show that their faith, their body of belief, their faith is not just a set of ideas, but the very living truth itself worth more than their own life. Hear it again. In being prepared to die for their faith, martyrs show that their faith, their body of beliefs, their faith is not just a set of ideas, but the very living truth itself worth more than their own. Dude, he's, they're about to kill you. Just say you're sorry. You get one shot at this life. They're going to kill you. It's going to be painful. Just tell them you won't do it again. You don't mean it. You don't believe it. You're going to stop. Can't do that. Why? This body of belief is worth more than my life here. But you only get one life. But it's worth more. If you're taking the note, write it down. Their death gives striking confirmation of their faith. Do you, really believe, do you really believe that nonsense? Oh, there's no doubt when somebody dies for the cause. They really believe it. Their testimony is confirmed. They sealed their testimony with their death. Striking confirmation. He writes... But I have one other thought to borrow from N.T. Wright. And it's unique to Stephen, but I don't think it's completely unique. It's rare to Stephen. I wouldn't plan on doing this, and there may be nobody here this morning. Zero, maybe zero. I cannot confirm or deny what might be said by someone's raised hand this morning. Can't confirm it or deny it. But I'm just curious, is there anyone here that you have a loved one or a friend, someone that you were fairly close to, that either you were there or you've heard eyewitness reports that as they were dying, they started talking as if they saw something. Something heavenly. Would you raise your hand unashamedly? Would you raise your hand? You've heard, right? Like, raise your hand where we can actually see. I'm looking, there's at least. Did that happen? Did it not? I don't know. I, I don't think what Stephen sees here, it is unique to him, but I don't think it's... There are many reports of martyrs seeing things. Now, here's what N.T. Wright writes for us. Quote, 
Because there's another aspect of martyrdom. He writes, the point at which a person stands at the very threshold of heaven and earth. you got to get that in your mind. Heaven, earth, threshold. They're at the threshold. The point at which a person stands at the very threshold of heaven and earth, still in earth, but called to give up their life for faith, is the point where they may for a moment be in a position where they can, as it were, see both dimensions of reality and speak about the normally hidden one to the people who cannot yet see it for themselves. And that's a powerful, powerful witness. And it doesn't always have its effect immediately. It often has its effect later as the people and the executioners are carrying out their murder of the martyr but they can't, I mean, it will haunt them. That man, that woman really believed in that. Did you hear what they were saying? It was, why would you die? If it's a fake, you wouldn't fake that. And it will haunt them. And sometimes it's been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's the seed. A seed is planted. And the fruit will come a little later. So verse 58, they stoned him. Real quick. There's this thing called the mission, and I don't know a lot about it, but it's Jewish oral tradition was finally pinned down, and I don't know how long it took, but the part that I'm going to give you now was somewhere around 200 A.D. 200 A.D., let's say 170 years after Jesus. What was written at 200 A.D. was that a stoning typically happened like this. A person would be put at the edge of a precipice. It may be 10 feet. It may be 15 feet. It might be more than that, much more than that potentially. A key witness, probably the primary witness, would come and just shove the person. The idea is that they will go face first over the precipice. Hopefully that kills them. Somebody checks. If it kills them, that's enough. But if they've been checked and they're not dead yet, they are rolled over. And then another witness takes a stone as best they can and they try to drop it on their heart. If that kills them, then stoning is over. But if that does not, then other witnesses begin just pelting the person with stones, not rocks, stones. This doesn't sound quite that organized. There's nothing said about throwing them over a precipice. Honestly, this sounds like just a bunch of men, dozens and dozens, and Jerusalem is extremely rocky terrain, and they're just grabbing stones and just crushing this man's body for his faith. I'll not bore you with the details, and I'll not gross you out with the details, but I've had to take the life of two things with a stone. One was my fault, an accident, and the other was an intentional choice that I regretted. One time we were coming home from bear hunting, which we use rifles, and I accidentally let one of our dogs loose, and he went right, right over, and he saw a little pack of kittens that we had that ran around the house, and he just shook one. But the poor little thing that wasn't quite dead by the time I got there, and Daddy said, you let him off, you got to finish that. And that little cat, I, I couldn't, he was like trying to meow, but there I don't know if you got the vocal cords or what. I had to get a stone. It's very personal. The other was when I was a little kid, maybe 10 years old, I was shooting a slingshot, and there was a rabbit about from here to the back door, and I hit him, and it kicked him over, and I could hear him, hear him squealing, and I kind of knew, oh, he's probably not going to live, and I had to. I didn't actually do the stone to him. I did him to Anyway, anyway, sorry. Ah, it ain't fun. It's ugly. It's very different. It's very personal. These people are just ravaging the man of God. 
but how does he die? You say, Jeff, this doesn't sound like peaceful death. I thought your point was Stephen's peaceful death. Look at verse 60, 59 and 60, and we'll be finished this morning. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Did did y'all catch that? Everybody hear that again? Hear it? Here's his prayers. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Who does that sound like? This sounds very much, I mean, Stephen has lived for his Lord, and now he's dying just like his Lord. Same thing. Jesus on the cross is praying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then he prays at the end, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so John R.W. Stott makes a point. He says there's Jesus, and there's Stephen in their prayer, and he writes the following. Listen, each prayed for the forgiveness of his executioners. Both of them do this. And they pray for the reception of his spirit as he died. But there's a difference. Stott writes, the difference was Jesus addressed his prayers to the Father while Stephen addressed his to Jesus, even calling him Lord and putting him on a level with God. Would you write this down? I'm a big proponent of this. And I I hope I've been influenced by Scripture. But let's be very clear this morning. Write this down. Though most prayer is directed to God the Father, most prayer... Biblically, even Jesus himself teaching this, most prayer is directed to God the Father. What this proves is that spirit-filled people also pray to Jesus. Spirit-filled people pray to Jesus. Why wouldn't we? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. Pray to him. But remembering most prayer is to the Father through the Son. Number two, second lesson. Stephen's prayer actually exemplifies a Christian's duty to love our enemies and to pray for people who persecute us. You say, yeah, Jeff, I'm actually having a real hard time forgiving somebody. No, listen, that's like the lowest one. That's the easiest one. Yes, we're to forgive our enemies. This actually says, Jesus in Matthew 5, 44, Sermon on the Mount, we are to love our enemies, and so much so we actually pray for our enemies. I've got to ask you guys. Now, I hope you're sitting there this morning going, I can't even think of an enemy. I can't think of anybody who's harmed me, hurt me, opposed me, or is harming, is opposing. Can't think of anyone. If you can, 99% of us, honest question. If you knew you have God's ear and God is face to face, listen, and God says, hey, what do you want? I'm going to do it. What do you want? It's got to be within my will. I'm going to give it to you. Think of that person. Could you, knowing that you have God's ear and he's going to do it, could you do this? Well, since you're going to answer it, Lord, I would ask you this. You know what so-and-so did to me and how it hurt me and damaged me. You've turned it for good. Will you not let it count against him? Could you do that, Lord? Would you just let it slide? Really, I want you to let it slide. Could you do this? In fact, Lord, would you just bless them real good? Most are probably thinking, man, that sounds great. That sounds like an awesome goal. (laughs) Stephen did it. How? 
The guy is so full of the Holy Spirit of God that the number one fruit of the Holy Spirit that's mentioned in Galatians 5, he's dominated by love. He's mainly concerned about their hell-bound souls. He's praying for their precious souls to not go to hell for eternity. This is what's consuming him. And little does he know it, somebody's over here watching, and he doesn't even know it, but it's having a major impact. The guy that's watching doesn't even know the impact it's having on him. But Saul of Tarsus is going to write about this later on in Acts chapter 22. He's going to speak of it. Last lesson from Stephen's prayers. MacArthur writes the following. And this is a good spot to finish. This confession of Stephen, it's a simple, you say, Jeff, we already know it. I know, but this is a place. Let's like, while we're here, let's glean a truth. MacArthur writes, this confession of Stephen indicates that he expected to enter the Lord's presence as soon as he died. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. MacArthur's correct. He literally expects to enter the presence of the Lord just as soon as he dies. I know you're writing, but I want you to listen at the same time. MacArthur continues. He says, the Bible does not teach any delay at all between life here and in heaven. Either some holding place such as purgatory or some unconscious state called soul sleep. The Bible doesn't teach either one of those. He writes, instead, Scripture teaches that believers enter Christ's presence immediately following death. In the book of 2 Corinthians, listen, Paul writes, and we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Boom, faster than that. That's how fast. They were just, where are they now? They're uh, Christians in the presence of the Lord. Paul, in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse number 23, he's in prison. He thinks he's going to get out of prison. He's thinking, if I do, whether I stay in prison or if I get out of prison, God's going to use me to serve his people. But I have this other option. They may kill me. That would actually be better because I'll go to be with the Lord. That would be far better. Listen, if Paul thought for a moment, they kill me here, I'll go to purgatory for a little while, that's not far better. I'm going to enter into soul sleep, just unconsciousness, waiting for a future day. That's not far better than here. Anybody would rather have this life than to just go into soul sleep. Those are made-up doctrines. MacArthur's correct. Stephen, he just assumes. And can I say it this way? When you live for the Lord, you can, when you put your faith in Christ, you can never lose your salvation. But as you see death approaching, that's a good time to just recenter your faith fresh on Christ. It's a good time. How does he do it? I want to quote that great theologian. Actually, I'm going to alter a quote from that great theologian, Richard Jefferson, NBA analyst. <laughs> Sarcastic. He made a statement one time. He says, again, his statement was, if you stay petty, you don't have to get petty. You ever met somebody like that? Listen, just stay petty, and that way you'll never have to get petty. You say, what does that have to do with anything? I think of Stephen, and the thought hits me. If you stay spirit-filled, you don't have to get spirit-filled. That's how to live life. This man showed us how to live and how to die. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Just before I pray, is there any way that you are resisting the Holy Spirit? Hey, you're here this morning. Thank you. We've heard the word of God. As the Lord 
reveals truth to you, do you just yield to it, give in? Or are you still resisting? you still like, no, I'm not a sinner. I'm not in danger of judgment. I'll get there another way. Jesus' death wasn't for me. It wasn't enough for me. Or I'll take some of that and I'll add my own good works. I'll get saved when I'm good and ready. Just know that you're resisting the Holy Spirit. If you turn from God, He may just turn from you and you'll be done. You'll get what you want. You don't want. You will not enjoy the consequences that comes your way. Is there a Christian? God is clearly showing you something in His Word about Himself, written by His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is giving testimony to something, but you've decided, I don't like that. It's not what I've been taught. I don't like the implications. I don't like the restriction that it may put on my life. I don't like to picture God that way. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. Has the Holy Spirit clearly said, I want you to stop doing a certain activity, and you just keep doing it. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. Is there something, really, this is a key one, I think. Is there something that the Holy Spirit, God has told you, I want you to start doing this. It really is that important. It's my will for your life. How long are you just going to keep holding off and quenching the Holy Spirit? Father, if there's anyone here this morning, Lord, I'm asking you right now. If there's anyone listening right now that has resisted your spirit and refused to put their faith in Christ, they heard it. It's clear. They know. They need you to give them faith, Lord. They need you to give them faith. I pray that today you would give them that faith to just trust Jesus. Just believe and receive. Confess their sins. Agree with you. Respond to what the Holy Spirit teaches us in your word. Lord, I pray that our church will be the kind of church that yields to your truth, that is eager to learn and delights in it, even the things we've never heard. Even the things about you, God, that we would not have drawn it up that way. May we learn to see correctly and learn to delight in all of your attributes. Even though they make us fearful and respectful of you, may we learn to delight in you as a person. You're worthy. Lord, when your spirit tells us to stop doing something, may we confess it and forsake it. And Lord, when your spirit calls us to do specific things, I pray that we will be yielded and controlled by your Holy Spirit and not resistant. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week. See you.